Welcome to the Speaks Exchange podcast with your host, Donald Taylor. As a renowned learning and development industry expert, as well as chairman of the Learning and Performance Institute, Donald sits down with experts from around the globe to talk business communication, learning technology, language, digital transformation, and engaging, upskilling, and reskilling your organization. This podcast is brought to you by Speaks, the first intelligent language learning platform for the digital workplace. Listen in and you might learn a thing or two. Hello, welcome to another Speaks Exchange podcast with me, Donald Taylor. I'm the chairman of the Learning and Performance Institute and your host. I have with me today, Julian Stodd, author, researcher, social age explorer. Julian, good to have you with us. Great to be here. Going to be launching straight into our conversation with Julian today. We're going to be talking about storytelling. Before we start with that, Julian, very quickly, what are you passionate about and why? Tell us something of yourself. Well, it might be a, probably a shorter answer to tell you what I'm not passionate about, but I'm, <laughs> I'm passionate, I guess, about creating systems, organisations, a society which is fairer, which is better, which is hears every voice equally. Let me put it like that. So I'm, I'm passionate about helping, uh, about learning to be better myself, about helping others to do better. And I suppose that business of helping voices be heard, if I was going to do a cheesy segue, would segue nicely into the whole point about storytelling. You do a lot of research, you do a lot of practical work with people, and you do a lot of thinking about stuff. Storytelling might seem slightly tangential, but it's important for learning. Why? You know, the way that you describe, the way that you just, the story that you told about what I do is a very nice story, but what you, <laughs> what you missed out of that is to say what I do mostly is go wrong. You know, my own story doesn't go in a straight line. It, it kind of follows all sorts of curves and twists and tails. It's messy and untidy. And in fact, that's a, a language I quite often use within organisations when I'm talking about social and collaborative models of learning. I say, if you want a really tidy story, then write it yourself and give it to people. That's an old model of learning organizations codifying the things that they know into formal stories and then doing them onto others Uh, social learning by contrast is people like you and me each with our own messy story and understanding of the world coming together and kind of battling it out and figuring it out and making sense of things so i'm interested in stories because learning is substantially an act of storytelling story making and kind of story listening as well so if i could try to summarize that storytelling represents a very natural mechanism for us sharing conversations and understanding the world either individually or collectively is that fair enough yeah i mean uh, i often say stories are the kind of basic unit for the cultural transmission of information so if i want to know pretty much anything about anything that you know uh, i'm going to ask you to tell me a story about it whether it's a a data-led story a passion-led story an inquisitive story they are the ways that we share information and the ways we make sense of information but more than that stories are the the ways we interact as individuals. So when we come together, we start with small and safe stories, and that lets us establish commonality or threat. And then we build up to more contentious and oppositional stories. So you and I know each other quite well, which probably means we're comfortable enough to have a conversation where we don't reconcile our stories, where we end up in a place of difference. And we recognize that that doesn't sort of threaten our underlying social bond. But that's something we've worked at over time. You know, it's a story that has created a space for us to be curious and 
and learn, but it takes time and it takes trust and it takes a whole range of other forces to do so. There's a lot in what you're saying here, and I'm making notes as you speak, and of course I've thought about this from previous conversations we've had about this. I'm going to just say a few words and I want to go on and ask you a question <laughs> without getting too diverted. Storytelling is a way that we learn from each other, it's the way we learn ourselves about what's happening in the world, but it's not as if it's a pure, untainted way of understanding things. There's a question of power, hierarchy. There is also a question of absolute truth in things and whether people are telling the truth in their stories. There's also a question of what truth people choose to present to people. They will often have a facade and there'll be a story they choose to tell, which may be the truth, but not the whole truth. And I guess also there's the question of how much story is linked with people's identity and whether they choose to believe the story rather than the truth. Anyway, there's an awful lot there and it may, the reason why I'm mentioning this is that if we're talking about people learning through storytelling, I'm always very keen to make sure that we approach these things as forensically and rigorously as possible. It's very easy to say, yes, we should all tell stories and imagine that's enough. I think it's a much deeper issue than what you're saying, but then a lot of people might be saying. Now, let's talk about what you're saying. We've talked about this in the past and you've mentioned three types of story or three lenses or three buckets you can put stories in. Is that fair enough? Yeah. The way that I look at it, as you come down from ideas, into into practical aspects mm-hmm. of learning design. I wrote my first book on learning methodology. I introduced a language about three levels of, of narrative. So there's a personal narrative, a co-created narrative, and an organisational narrative. And I'll just give you a sort of quick overview of why I use that language uh, and why it's intended as quite a practical tool for instructional design. So the first is that, you know, anybody going through a a learning experience, especially a sort of a social collaborative experience, a journey which takes place over time, they build their personal narrative. And your personal narrative of learning is broadly, this is what I've heard. This is how it stacks up against what I knew before. These are the things I'll discount immediately. These are the things I'm going to ponder on a bit more. This is what I now believe. This is what I no longer believe. The thing about your personal narrative is, firstly, it's yours. So it is true. I have no permission or context in which I can deny or dispute your personal narrative. But of course, it's not the same as mine. And the co-created narrative is is what you and I make together. And so the key thing about a co-created narrative is it's not a story of consensus. If we talk about a subject, we may not get to consensus. So a co-created narrative should explore the things we do agree on, the things we don't agree on. So co-created narratives require a really specific skill set. But again, you can't really mark them right or wrong because they're just what a group believes at a given point in time. The organisational narrative may be a formal perspective. And historically, learning started with a formal narrative, an organisational narrative, and pushed it out to learners. But today, the the formal narrative should really be partly built to include an opportunity for everybody to put their personal story into it and to hear the co-created story. And I'll give you a quick example, Mm, just mm. some of the research on that. So in a leadership development program, exec leadership development program I ran in in one of the um, big petrochemical companies, I put 150 people through this in 10 different cohorts. And each cohort had the opportunity to 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 write over the course of the program their personal narrative. And together they co-created these magazines which represented their shared views. And at the end of the program, I carried out a full analysis of each of those books that were written. And we discovered something that was sort of potentially quite alarming, that they only shared about 40% of common content that the organisation would say was correct. 
So if we were marking them, we would say, well, they got 60% of what they wrote wrong. But the important thing to note is that what they wrote was based on interviews they carried out with at least 12 different people within the organisation. So what they wrote was some kind of grounded truth. Now, it may have been wrong, but when you looked at what was wrong, it was typically things like names, dates, contexts. They got some details wrong. But what they did share was really a kind of a view of, of culture, a view of what people really thought. And I sort of share that not to say whether that's right or wrong, just to say that's what is. So in any organisation, I think this is true. Uh, people don't have an identikit story of their understanding. It's always local and flavoured and contextualised. So in instructional design, we can build in opportunities for people to share personal stories, to build co-created narratives. And we can ensure that the legacy from the project isn't simply a formal narrative, but is, is something which captures some of the nuance and detail of all three. Sometimes it doesn't matter if we get the facts wrong, but sometimes it does matter if they get the facts wrong. If you're building a bridge, things have to measure up. If you're firing a gun, you have to point in the right direction. What about the obligation of a organisation saying this is, or this part of the narrative at any rate, is incontrovertible? Yeah. We have well, to do things this way. And that can either be a sort of bald factual thing, or it can be a cultural thing. We do things this way, or these are the things we do. Yes, I mean, I, I think that what you're explaining makes perfect sense, and I think the three lenses makes a, a perfect way of looking at it, but surely the organisational narrative shouldn't take a back seat always. Uh, no, but I think what you're, you, you know, you're exactly getting to the point of it. So the first thing to remember is that giving people the opportunity to shape and share their stories is not the thing that creates the context where their stories are different. Their stories have always sure. been. Yeah, 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 yeah. They've always done this. Yeah, yeah. We've never had the the ability or right or privilege of of hearing <laughs> the difference. But really, to your point, what this speaks down to is just one of the fundamentals of learning design. Start with your purpose and think about your outcomes. So, if the purpose of your learning is to get people to understand one core common formal story. For example, in regulation, in regulatory training, compliance yeah. training could be that. Then, absolutely adopt a mode of organisational design and delivery which ensures and measures that at the end that's exactly what they do. But the reality is that most of the time we are looking for something more than that, even I should say in things like compliance training. What we're looking for is a compliance culture mm, as much as mm, specific mm. pieces of knowledge. Now culture comes from behaviour, which comes from belief, which comes from uh, the communities that people uh, create to operate within. So in most cases, I would say, there is a good argument for consciously and deliberately working out which parts of the story should be tackled in which way. And yeah, I would totally agree with that. I'm brought to think of Channel 4's famous compliance training where they, they had a whole bunch of people, they, things they had to, to tell people about and get people to do right in terms of a diversity programme. But it was difficult summing it all up and getting people to, to take it forward. And so they got a video. They got a Barry White. Barry White's a, a singer from the, I think, 70s and 80s, with a very deep voice, American singer, very popular in the UK. And they got a Barry White impersonator to write a song about loving people. And it was very slow and it had classic Barry White words in it. And it lasted about 
won the half minutes and they, they summed the whole of this program up or at least the entrance to it getting people to think about it in the phrase what would barry do in the sense that if you thought that barry white was the sort of guy who'd say yep what you're doing the way you're treating that person is okay then it was right and if you ask yourself what would barry do here and he'd be unhappy with it then probably you weren't uh, doing things the right way and that is i think it was very creative it was also very effective in a very non-checkboxy way that i don't I'm not sure if you'd call it storytelling or something else but anyway it hooked onto what was in people's minds so I don't, I don't know if that's relevant or not Julian but anyway this brings us to this idea then or at least in my mind uh, storytelling and leadership if you have got a culture where you're encouraging people because storytelling is a natural way of that if you have a culture in which people are sharing ideas together in their stories and the organisation has a story to tell as well. How does storytelling fit with leadership? Well, I'd, I'd probably answer that by saying when I wrote the, the Social Leadership Handbook, for its entire life, through 14 separate draft manuscripts, the title of the book was The Storytelling Leader. And it was only at the very last minute that I, I changed the, the title to the uh, Social Leadership Handbook. Hmm. So really, you know, when I talk about storytelling, I'm not talking about, you know, once upon a time, far, far away, long time ago. It's not that kind of story. It's the way that we socially co-create our, our understanding of the world around us, the way we build our culture, the way we build our dominant narratives, and all of that defines our space of operation. Let me sort of tell you a couple of reasons why mm. I see it as important. The, the first is that one good view of an organisation, of all organisations, is that they're all full of good people, all broadly doing the right thing. The same as you and me are good people who always do the right thing. The problem, of course, when you take a look at that globally is you realise we don't all share the same view of what right is. So in fact, if you cut the culture of an organisation in half, you find that it's, it's made up of a whole series of entirely coherent subcultures which stand in opposition to each other. And I did... Well, a, they don't necessarily stand in opposition to each other, but they can do. Well, I would say they actually, they do in one really key way. And this will take me right back to the start when I said you were very kind in not mentioning how often I'm wrong. So one really specific way that I've evolved my own work, or a, uh, which is a polite way of saying I've bailed myself out of a hole, is when I wrote the original first edition of the Social Leadership Handbook, I said communities are entities of shared value and shared purpose. Uh, I was absolutely right at the time that I wrote it and I now think is absolutely wrong. What I should say is some communities are entities of shared value and shared purpose, but the, the definition I use for communities now is that a, a community is an entity of exclusion because if anybody can be in it, it's kind of not a community, it's just the entire world. So one really safe way to define a community is by who is not in it. Mm. Now, in that sense, when I talk about cultural fragmentation, I don't mean cultural war. I don't mm. mean that we are actively attacking those other people. However, we do very often define ourselves by not being those other people. So in the work I do around storytelling and power in the context of social leadership, we look at the difference between communities which are internally coherent and communities which are oppositional. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you an example of those. A, a community that's internally coherent may have a really clear view and shared values and shared purpose and be trying to achieve a set thing. A community of opposition may just be a bunch of people that disagree with you. So it's the anti-Donald Taylor community. We don't have to be united in what we would put in your place. We're just absolutely certain that we don't want it to be you. Now, the funny thing is you can do some quite practical things with that. So yeah. if you 
um, look at organizational change, very often senior leaders feel the need to say, firstly, we have to change. And secondly, here's the story of what the future looks like. But it turns out perhaps you don't have to do that. Perhaps you just have to say, now we need to change. Let's create a space where you can share opposing views of what the future will look like. So understanding sort of stories and power is a really central point of it, I think. And to understand, of course, you see right now, you know, Greta Thunberg and Donald Trump standing in opposition. But funnily enough, the opposition doesn't weaken either of them. It strengthens both of them. So in that sense, their power is purely oppositional. When it comes to leadership in organisations, then, traditionally, hierarchies will are, are there to to support the people in power and the people higher up the hierarchy have the right to tell their story and have it listened to. Do they always bother? Are they conscious of it? How could they improve what they're doing to make, to help the organisation learn better as a result of their leadership? Yeah, well, you know, uh, thank you very much for bringing me around to another area where I find I was substantially wrong. So, you know, <laughs> I, I used to sort of tackle some of this with a sense that, um, uh, you know, organisations spend quite a lot of time uh, filming beautiful videos of, of senior execs in, in, in smart clothes standing outside their global headquarters with flags flying in the background telling a story down the organization and I assumed that you know for quite a lot of people further down they, they're not really all that super interested in those stories uh, but what I discovered is it's just me that's not interested in those stories. I did some quite large-scale work with a, a, a tool which is called a cultural readiness for change tool. It's this quite complex diagnostic that just explored how ready a culture was to change. And what it discovered was that um, in some, but I should say not all organisations, people actually seem to really enjoy hearing really well-told stories from the top. Uh, there's one caveat around that. They have to be authentic. We did a big piece of research looking at that, and authenticity of storytelling is, is deemed the number one trait that people look for. Can we just be clear what we mean by authenticity? Oh, crikey, you see, you're diverting me from one thread into something entirely else. So, in, in two minutes or less. Okay, so I'll, I, I, well, again, I'll just share with you what the research shows around authenticity. So again, I did a, a piece on this with the Scottish Government and National Health Service. Uh, where we actually used graffiti to get people to share words and images around authenticity and then analysed all of it. And broadly speaking, authenticity is generally depicted as roots and as growth. So as trees and flowers, as rockets and stars. So generally, it was roots and height and speed. Now, make of that what you will, but that's uh, that's uh, quite a large group and 13 different groups I carried that out with and analysed it all. Interesting. And imagery people use around authenticity. What I would say is that um, authenticity, one good view of authenticity is a judgment. So authenticity is not something you can specifically put into your leadership. It is a way that your leadership is judged. Hmm. So that's like quite a, a, a key piece. So we listen to these stories told by these CEOs in their suits outside these headquarters. And according to your research, people find them engaging and interesting, provided they are authentic. Let's say they're authentic. Oh, well, that was the story you diverted me off with. Authenticity. I did, yes. So the key thing was that they did quite enjoy hearing them. Right. But the number one thing they wanted was space to respond. And that, I think, represents one of the fundamental challenges for formal leaders today, that we have been 
trained and indoctrinated by the new context of the social age that every time somebody tells a story we have an inherent right and privilege to respond to it to like it to dislike it to offer an opposing view and we kind of feel that we have every right to do so mm. and that is why i would normally focus for more senior leaders on the core skills of story listening so how do they enable others to to share their story how do they ensure that nobody's voice is silenced uh, and how do they listen without responding, without owning, without colonizing, without denying, without deploying any of the sort of antibody effects of, of strong hierarchies and modern organizations? Just going back to the story bit then. So if, uh, if I'm a CEO and I tell my story in front of my uh, headquarters and I give no space for feedback or response, is that worse than not telling the story? Well, I'm not sure I can answer that uh, because... It probably uh, depends on context. Would it, yeah. would, it, would it alienate some people so much that it would be better if I hadn't said it at all? Well, I, I mean, I, I can only give you a perspective on it. So I've been working for a couple of years on a, a manuscript of a book I haven't published yet called The Change Handbook, which looks mm. at socially co-created models of change. Effectively, how can you achieve transformation as a social movement rather than as purely a formal project? And, you know, the evidence says that we quite strongly need to do this because most formal change programs fail to affect the cultural transformation that people are looking for. They move all the bricks about, but they yeah. don't sort of create a new home. So in that work, I look at uh, two pieces. One is the role of, of leaders to sort of set a direction and to frame a future state. But the second is the individual agency of everybody mm. to both co-create that future state and invest themselves in it. So I suppose my answer would be, if formal leaders don't share any story, they can't be even painting that frame and picture. But if they try to own every part of the story, then there's no space for people to invest. And if we don't invest, then you can't truly change. And I'll, I'll tell you a, a couple of reasons why that would seem to be important. So the first is, as uh, you know, I've been carrying out some very large scale research around trust around the world for, for three years now. And one of the pieces that came out of that I found fascinating, which is when we ask people, you know, cross-culturally, if the organization you work for trusts you, what will, how will that be manifest? How will you feel that trust? And the, the top answer we get for that is freedom. I will have freedom to experiment, to explore, to try new things. So what mm. that tells me is, you know, can people want to be in a trusting relationship? They want to explore. Now, if I look at another piece of research, which is a bit more nerdy and niche. So for around the last seven years, I've been researching predominantly in, in military and government contexts around disruption and failure, understanding how some organizations fail. And the, the, there are some common threads in that work. One is to say that organizations that fail are full of brilliant people like you and me. It's <laughs> definitely a mistake to think that organizations that fail are full of idiots. And, and the second thing is that organizations that fail typically knew that stuff was done wrong. You know, a ton of people within those organizations knew that stuff was done wrong. However, they never managed to surface that new narrative and that new story. So it's not that they didn't understand it was wrong. It's that they were unable to create a new social movement that would take the organization to the right place. Can I just clarify that there? Are you saying that some people knew about it, but their ability to alter things, they, they were prevented from altering things, or there was a general feeling that something was wrong, but nobody could put their finger on it? So there's a really funny feature of social systems. It's perfectly feasible in a, in a group, in a community, in a society 
for the collective to exhibit a behavior that the majority of individuals don't agree with, which seems weird because you think, well, how can a group of people mm. carry out action that the majority of individuals disagree with? And that's the key point. It's to do in my work, I talk about aggregation and amplification. Mm. So in those organizations that fail, a majority of people may well have a strong belief or understanding or knowledge about that failure, but there's never a point of collapse of the waveform into it never aggregates around a new narrative. And that's what's super interesting. So if you look at the sort of contemporary uh, society around us, look at the conversation about single use plastics. We can probably have a meaningful conversation about single use plastics because the conversation has collapsed. It's aggregated around a specific thing. We've not collapsed it. It's already happened. So that has created the space where it's normal and it's safe and it's acceptable for you and me to have a conversation around it. So understanding how this mass and mess of stories sometimes collapses into a new dominant narrative into a viewpoint is super important because it turns out that despite loads of people trying to sell you services that would make that happen it's a wildly unpredictable feature there are plenty of super important stories which never collapse down never um, sort of uh. ag- around a common I'm, I'm sure i'm sure it's complicated but there must be some common factors to when groups of people large or small change their minds or are prepared to have conversations at any rate about things uh, single-use plastic is a great example and that will have started with some people saying it was wrong and being hounded or ignored as eccentrics until at some point they gained enough traction somehow to convince not a majority necessarily but enough people that it was a fight worth having. Let's assume that's a mechanism. In organisations where you've got something going wrong, what is it that prevents something like that happening? Well, arguably, the thing that you just described is not what happens. So it's it's a wonderful analytic view of how things change to say, well, there's a groundswell of views and opinion and gradually we come to hear the story and it sort of collapses down and then it becomes safe to have the narrative. Of course, what quite often happens is there's a groundswell of different views and it does collapse down, but it collapses down into two tribes that try to wait for each other outside the pub on a Friday night and kick each other to death. You know, they, mm. they, they, it doesn't move to consensus. Oh, I wasn't um, saying necessarily move to consensus, but purely that, that enough people started talking about it that people who are marginal might feel it was okay to talk about it and and almost certainly face opposition it could do but again uh, so i'm I'm not disagreeing with that sometimes that does happen but of course the other thing is it's a bit like unpleasant tasting medicine sometimes the 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 story we need to hear is not Mm. the one with mass and popular support sometimes the really difficult and minority voice so I've actually, uh, just last week, I was sketching out some very early work. So uh, again, as, as you know, I'm sure I, I, I described some of my work as the 1% work, which means it's kind of 99% likely to be wrong. And it, it, it looks at culture map. So it, it's really an attempt to reconcile or represent in the action of the individual against the culture of the organization. And in that work, I look at sort of two axes. One is the, you know, the things I want to achieve and the things I want to prevent. And the other axis is when I stand alone and when I stand with others. And that's the bit that's relevant for this conversation. Because sometimes you're trying to prevent something and you're standing alone, which means you're isolated. 
and there's nobody standing next to you. But that doesn't necessarily mean that your story is wrong. So, you know, to your question, I guess I'd frame your question as resilience. You know, how can an organisation have a capability, firstly, to continue doing the things it needs to do? So it's no good being hugely excitable, hearing loads of opposing stories, letting people experiment and explore, going crazy, getting very excitable and then going bankrupt. That's not doing anybody any, any favours. Right. It's probably no good listening to those stories and then doing nothing about it either, and it, making people feel that they're, they're talking about something which is then ignored. So Exactly. So what, you know, the, the, the only thing worse than asking people for a view is hearing their view and <laughs> not, not, not respecting it. <laughs> don't agree with so what we can talk about is how a modern organization you know in my work i talk about a socially dynamic organization will have the ability to hear a really diverse range of stories and will have the mechanisms to make sense of them to filter them to respond to them with the right type of currency and the currencies that we would respond to those may be currencies of reputation or gratitude or respect or pride you know the social currencies of the organization so really it's if you look at the the strongest organizations we have today they tend to have distributed sensory arrays they have an ability to hear weak voices which are slowly filtered by communities and then they're able to work out what to do something about. So it's not specifically that they have enormous amounts of money or enormous amounts of power to affect change. It's partly that they just have a humility to sort of listen to diverse range of views, but they also have the mechanisms to filter and make sense of it. It sounds like a natural point to, to come to a conclusion. Before I ask you the final question, which I always ask all podcast guests, who's doing a good job with this stuff right now that you know of? Who's, who's listening and filtering and where necessary taking action? So I think that a range of organisations do parts of it well in parts. So the transnational organisations, these global and emergent entities, you know, predictably enough, if we look at some one like Google, it has a sort of a broad cultural coherence and it has quite a good ability to hear stories at scale and it has really excellent mechanisms to filter them. Hmm. What I would say is that that broad cultural coherence that they have, which is very different from what you would see perhaps in a, a legacy bank or something, which tends to have a broad cultural fragmentation, it still has its limits. So broadly, I would say organizations like Google tend to be good at hearing quite a wide range of stories, but still within, there is still a limit. There are to limits that. there, yeah. If you look at organizations like Novartis, uh, which has a sort of fantastic work going on at the moment about unbossed and around curiosity mm-hmm. and hundreds, a hundred hours of learning. What I really read into that is a willingness to embrace diversity rather than conformity. So that's quite interesting. Novartis is not alone amongst the pharmaceutical companies in sort of fearfully looking at the future and wondering how it can get a step ahead of the game. But it's the only one I'm aware of which is tackling that through a diversity of learning and a diversity of views and opinion rather than other structural approaches. Interestingly, of course, both Google and Novartis are essentially knowledge companies that rely on their people and what the people can know and do, which brings us quite nicely back to the idea that storytelling, diversity, listening to people 
is crucial for learning in this individual and broadest organizational sense. Julian, let's wrap up with the classic question, which we always ask at the end of every interview. What do you wish you'd known when you started in learning development? And what are you curious about right now in workplace learning? You know what, sort of unhelpfully, there's almost nothing that I wish I'd known when I started out, because I, I, I hold very true to one principle, which is almost the greatest gift you can bring to a new situation is ignorance because it saves you the bother of having to unwrap all of the dogma and doctrine that has come before. So uh, I never cease to be amazed by how many things people assume that I have read or know, whilst in fact I've read virtually none of that stuff. I've been too busy reading other weird and eclectic stuff. You know, I'm more of a generalist than a specialist. You know, to the, the point, what am I most curious about at the moment? Well, I always view my work like this. Sometimes it's very divergent. Sometimes threads are going chasing off in all sorts of directions. And after a while, it starts to make me feel really unsettled because I wonder whether I'm ever going to be able to pull it back together, you know, into the half of my life where I actually have to deliver <laughs> real projects and measurable change. You know, yeah. it's not a space yeah. of ideas, it's a space of action. And at other times it comes together and it kind of takes shape and takes form. So at the moment, the thing I'm most curious about is the irreconcilability of our social systems. And I'm capturing that in a phrase which is talking about moving from a one-dimensional organisation to a multi-dimensional one. So, you know, in our own research, people identify that they belong to at least 15 different communities that help them be effective on a daily basis. And into each of those communities, they project a different sense of self. The latest neuroscience will sort of indicate that we are ourselves simply a collection of stories and a narrative told on top of them. So I think that it's really interesting, you know, if you look at leadership, it's internally conflicted. It's about control and enablement. It's about what we do to others and what is done to us. So understanding a multidimensional organisation where you yourself will have to sort of change hats and change roles and change stance sometimes in the same minute of the day becomes quite interesting and I'm not there yet but I'm, I'm, I'm getting my, trying to get my head around that and it will refine and evolve the language I use about the socially dynamic organisation. I think you described something there which people intuitively will recognise the shifting nature of how we work and the personalities that we choose to portray at work and the different ways we have to use different parts of ourselves at work. When you get an answer on that one Julian let us know we'll come back and do another podcast because if we can somehow get a handle on that multi-dimensional organization and multi-dimensional life that we have to live. I think it was something which would be tremendously useful to everybody. Julian Stodd, author, researcher in the social age and researcher, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.